Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Wondering if you're keeping up with deep dives, buddy dives, and dive master interviews? You might not be. To be sure you're getting all my content as soon as it's available, as well as a commercial-free option, please subscribe to Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform. I uh, I have a friend who's a huge, good friend of mine who's a huge Star Trek fan, and I tease him about Star Trek all the time because to me, Star Trek is like a nightmare hellscape dystopia. <laughs> yes. And the real truth of Star Trek is that the Federation is actually evil. Yeah. And it's the Romulans and the Klingons that are the yes. heroes, right? The, the Federation is this entity that engages, they're basically communists, and they engage in this gunboat diplomacy yeah. in the of, you know, we're here to explore. We're here to explore, but we have a giant battleship that we yes, do it with. that you must assimilate. Have, See, Serenity is a much better show to watch. All these alien cultures into their monochromatic, yeah. one world, you know, one universe government, and these very unique individual cultures get erased in that in yeah. that in that assimilation, and they respect no one's sovereignty. Tell your friend to watch Serenity. Serenity is where the where the I watch you it, like yeah. that. It's so great. Love it. Of I, course, it was canceled immediately. So yes, I totally agree. It's the universal guess. I have a world government's universe government, and so they say like that's the least libertarian show ever, and King of the Hill is the most libertarian show ever. I just like it because it's a nerd who kicks ass. Like I just Hank Hill's my hero, but uh, but yes, it's a totally unlibertarian thing. This the Star Trek. We, we need nations. We need strong nations that are independent. Because by the way, strong independent nations hold each other in check too. Agree. So what is a nation? What defines a nation? And this, and I'll tell you why I'm asking this question. Because I'll look back, and I'm reading this book, and boy, when you get to the ending, it's like a very, very anti-immigrant, the Milner-Fabian conspiracy. I didn't know that that's where this book was headed, but its subtitle is How an International Elite is Taking Over and Destroying Europe, America, and the World. And it's saying that the weapon is reverse colonization in order to weaken the Western peoples who would resist the kind of totalitarianism so they want to bring in cultures like we you know we i think favor immigrants who have a socialist background and don't understand why we have economic strengths to the extent we do or in europe bring in um you know uh islam because they have this idea of sharia law which is like a much more powerful church state continuum which would play into the hands of those who would want a more a dictatorial structure and they don't care about the indigenous people who maybe bring a certain strength, a certain resistance. And so for for when I think about Europe, like in the perspective of this book, the UK, or I shouldn't even call it the UK, Britain, Ireland would be separate, France, Germany, like these are places that had uh, an ethnicity, a culture. I mean, you could say Spain, but then you would separate out Basque, whatever. Our, as an American, it's very hard for me to think that way because we, we in my opinion, are 
you know, a fabricated nation that perhaps was established as an economic thing. It was established, you know, we like to say that it was, you know, for religious freedom. I almost wonder if England intentionally oppressed people religiously to force them to colonize this country that they needed to colonize. So for me, it's like hard for me to think of this nation as having some kind of, um, we had like well, the way I think about the indigenous people in this country, the American Indians, they, maybe they're the ones who have that real right to the land. I think it's easier to think of for Europeans where like they were in the land for thousands of years or whatever. They, they if if they don't have a right to that land, what right do they have to any land? And and why did they give up their culture to to those who are, you know, colonizing it, it to the extent it clashes? And then, the, you know, that they say, oh, that's all racism, whatever. And, and my argument is you're fostering multiculturalism and that seems to be exacerbating racism. You know, why is this happening? And but but my original question is because that's the second question. But my original question to you is like, how do you think about what is the culture, what defines the nation state? And, you know, what are the what really makes up? So because like I think that when you look at those countries like France or whatever, you can look at a couple of things that may define culture geographically, and that would be religion or like climate topography. You know, if you have a place that has a lot of water, you're going to have a different law, a different culture, maybe even a different religion. If you have a place with very little water, you're going to have a totally different way of living. And there's places that have a hierarchy where the men are on top and there are a few places that have the women are on top. And I always think it has to do with where you are physically. And that is, does align with the land. In America, it's hard for me to think of it that way. Well, I think it's a combination of it's a combination of things that are both physical but also social and cultural. And the heart the tricky part about it is that it's not fixed in time. So um I annoyed uh a like super kind of left wing progressive person that I know because they were complaining. I don't know if you've heard about some of the things that Morrissey from the Smiths has said that have gotten him in trouble. Oh, no, no. They're destroying British culture, right? Oh, I didn't know and that. And I, I made the comment of like, well, you know, you keep telling me how indigenous Americans have this, you know, this right to the territory here and they're the ones who are rightfully here and America is the invader. Well, if that's true, White people are probably indigenous people of Britain. I mean, they have more of an indigenous, you know, it's these cultures that are coming from the outside are displacing the indigenous people right. of Britain, which happen to be white people. It's just a fact. You know, Perhaps white people are automatically bad, no matter what the context yes. is. So they can't get their head around that idea. The reality is there is some amount of fluidity to it. And, you know, this is where we have to look at some of the, the kind of ugliness of human behavior and the ugliness of history that borders are not necessarily fixed and conquest is real. And sometimes people have territory at one point in time and don't have it at another point in time, right? Prussia is not a country <laughs> in our modern world, right? But at one time, the Prussians were a very unique and distinct identity within the world. You know, the map, the map in Europe has changed dramatically over time. 
The map in every part of the world has changed dramatically. Poland. Over time. Look at the borders of Poland over yeah, time. The borders of Poland have have, have tr changed dramatically, right? One of the reasons we it, have did not exist. a lot in Ukraine is we have populations in Ukraine that really are Russians. Absolutely. Some Russians consider Ukraine to be the birthplace of Russia, right? I mean, this stuff yes. is very the Rus. To some degree, it's very it's very complicated, and it's ultimately sorted out by the people of the place plus their neighbors. But if you want to talk about America and the United States, there is a unique identity to the United States, um, particularly an identity that existed prior to a lot of the onset of immigration. Because again, one of the differences between immigration now and immigration of the past is immigrants of the past to a much more, much higher degree than now were expected to and expected themselves to identify as Americans and to assimilate into absolutely this society and this culture because you did not could not physically survive if you could not function economically and that forced integration. So I one of right. my four grandparents went back to Syria. Right, join in. You joined in or you got out. Right, right. And I mean, you know, I look at my own family's history at at. My at my father's generation, nobody speaks Italian anymore. His grandparents were monolingual Italian. His parents were bilingual. Mm -hmm. And at his generation, everybody spoke English. And he used to tell me, like, they'd get smacked if they got caught speaking Italian. Right. You speak English, you're an American. Absolutely. And that was a matter of survival. There were no anti-discrimination laws back then. And, you know, where he lived in the inner city in Philadelphia... Right, like they stuck together as this immigrant group because it wasn't safe to be out by yourself. I read in a book well, called identified as part of this immigrant group. It was a New York Times bestseller called Lawrence of Arabia, and in there it was talking about the advent of Israel and that some British and European Jews felt like it was a plot to make them seem not English or not French that they had worked so many years, so many centuries to present themselves as assimilated and as, you know, just as much of a of a member of those nations. And then they were asked to like be loyal to Israel. They're like, but I've been trying to convince you that I'm French or English for all this time. That it's right, been, it's such a it was so strong before like say 1960 or 50, like for everybody, for immigrants everywhere to feel to demonstrate that they were truly a part of the larger society. Right. They the idea of the melting pot was that you melted into it. Right. And became a part of it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know. And you chose it. In America, I would say you chose it. And that yeah. in itself is what the culture is. It was, it was unique, but it was real. It was, this was, I didn't like my culture. It wasn't doing it for me. I, I'm an outcast there, but I just want to sink or swim. I want to eat what I kill. Like, this is the place for me. And, you know, people that are of, you know, the the Gen X era or older have a different reaction to things like the American flag, you know, Davy Crockett. <laughs> I still remember, I was a small boy at the time. Know, I, I think we remember, were wrong. I still remember the bicentennial and the flags everywhere. Oh, me too. We painted the, we painted the fire plugs. Yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm looking at the fire plug I painted in you know, 1976. You know, and I think that's part of what drives some of the appeal of this MAGA movement 
amongst people that are craving that idea of American culture. I still remember, I grew up in Southern California and I still remember going to Disneyland as a kid and they had this giant thing there called America Sings, which was a revolving theater with like animatronic animals that sang like Nicky Doodle Dandy and like, you know, think about those old schoolhouse rock cartoons that were on on Saturday Oh yes, I'm just a bill. bring people into this idea of American culture. And you can look at that stuff as, you know, corny, or you can look at that stuff as culture becomes a unifying force. Why are we so divided now? Because we don't have that idea of common culture and we don't expect immigrants to think of themselves as Americans. We expect them to think of themselves as natives of their culture. And so this these different cultures become identical identity dividers and division points rather than Hey, right. we're all Americans. Right. The strength that we're told that it brings, it does not bring. Because and by the way, it's it's exploit the the fishers are exploited. Right. Every mass migration in history brings this is why it's not about race. Every mass migration in history brings with it the same things that we are seeing in immigrant populations now. When the Irish came here, they lived in squalor and poverty and increased crime and overcrowding and you know people saying you're taking our jobs same thing for Italians and other European immigrants the same thing happened when the Okies migrated to the San Joaquin Valley where I came from they were welcomed with open arms they were seen as poor and dirty and they lived in squalor what enabled elevation was that assimilation and becoming part of the culture and those those identity differences that were very important for a time became less important now Right. Like to my kids, the idea of people discriminating against Irish people or Italian people just seems silly. It's laughable. Yeah. But right. it did definitely happen. And it I, and I, huge. but being able to work for below minimum wage was important too, because you could, if everybody had that, you know, work like a dog mentality. I mean, my father, my father used to deliver meat for his dad to, the Brooklyn Dodgers, <laughs> he, you know, they paid, gave him a tip one year where they all signed the baseball for him, which he lost, or we would probably be millionaires. So, um, but there was always like you, you got a woman could work for what they called pin money or whatever. Well, and you really eliminate a lot of the ability to, um, to like distinguish yourself and get ahead in the American dream if that immigrant. Um, echelon is it doesn't have access to being like the scrappiest. Not that that's something great, but I want to hear you have to say, and then I want you to comment on the role religion might play in in some of the issues with immigration. Well, minimum wage goes hand in hand with this unchecked third world immigration that we're dealing with because we've made we've made you know minimum wage the basic tool for setting our wage floor instead of market forces, as I, as I mentioned earlier. And all minimum wages is a price control. And as we all know, price controls are like the worst thing you can do to your economy. And so, um, you know, but again, this is what happens when you don't control the flow of people into a particular country from an economic perspective when it comes to labor, right? We didn't have to deal with that in the United States in the era of Italian, in the era of Irish, in the you know, in the era of European immigration, because we were trying to fill up what was a, an empty country, and we were trying to fill the void of people who moved west in in Eastern industry. 
we're much more stable now. It's not the same world now. So now we start undermining these. Again, we can, you know, we could have a long arc. We probably, you know, as much as I, I, I tease libertarians, we probably are in lockstep agreement on the the problems of the welfare state and the problems of public school systems and the problems of all this massive government and tax fed infrastructure that we have. But we do have it. And as yeah. long as we have it, you know, again, every public school in the San Joaquin Valley is overrun by the children of immigrants. In Madera, where my wife used to teach, farm worker town, agricultural town, horrible gang problems, violence problems. She had kids on ankle monitors. Okay. <sighs> now we live in a small town in Oregon. <laughs> my wife used to go to like back to school night in Madera. And, you know, they'd set up the classroom. The parents were supposed to come in and meet the teachers. Like, we all have this kind of memory and like we've done it with our own kids. No one would show up. Oh, sometimes no that comes. I noticed it when I moved to Pasadena. They bust the kids. So they take kids out of black communities. They put them in the richer neighborhoods. And then the parents who work have absolutely no access to the kids at all. And, they can't and, go to the games. They can't after school. It's actually, uh, it, it's subversive to me to the, to the donor community. It's it's subversive to everybody because this migrancy that gets created in our modern immigration, especially in a place like the San Joaquin Valley, is you have instability in these communities. Kids are here today. They're gone tomorrow. Right. They, they disappear. Nobody knows where they went. They're just, you know, they're, I live in a small town in Oregon now. My wife's teaching up there. And there's a lot of poverty. There's rural poverty there. But even within the poverty, these people, these poor people are rooted in their community and they're rooted in the community. The parents are deeply engaged with their kids' education because they're, they're, their family might be poor, but they've been there for generations and they feel connected to that community. They feel connected to that school and they want to see if their kids can do better. And it's, it's not that the immigrants are bad people, right? You're just, you're creating an environment that is destructive. By the way, it's destructive to them as well as to the society at large. They yes. don't notice it as much because they tend to be coming from places that are so impoverished that they're yeah. deaf for anything that's improved. I know two people who, uh, two separate families where the parents, maybe this is wrong information, but I believe them, were undocumented, like lifelong undocumented, of like wouldn't, didn't use amnesty or anything whenever that came along. And they did not get married. They were not married. So these were people who would otherwise be Catholic, but they did not get married, apparently, because they were undocumented. And they just, I don't know if they, I would say, just go to your priest and marry secretly. But I asked my uncle who was a priest to marry me without a marriage license, and he would not. So it happens all the time in the farm worker community where um, you'll have a man and a woman who are living together and they'll say they're married and they say they're husband and wife, but there's no there's no legal or church marriage there. And they tend to be deeply Catholic coming from Mexico. Um, you know, all of this stuff, you know, again, the very idea, if we don't have some control over the flow of people into the country and who lives here, then there isn't a country. And maybe some people are okay with that idea. Some people like that idea. There's a lot of libertarians who I think would be fine with that. But I don't think, I don't think the elimination of sovereignty is a, is a better picture for the world I think the elimination of sovereignty, as we were talking about earlier, is a much faster road to a one-world government with a high level of elites controlling yeah. everybody else who are living at a lower level. I'll tell you why I think uh, 
culture-based or geography-based or whatever, like national sovereignty that you're talking about, has a value in this, that if you have a body of law based on a culture, and I want to talk a little bit about religion in this context, what is true about, and this is a problem I have with how libertarianism is exploited, because as I say, libertarians die by the sword, but they don't live by it. They'll champion anything that is popular, the Koch brothers or, you know, Cato or whatever, or Reason Magazine, which are all, in my opinion, been infiltrated, but it's a cohesive system. So you can't uh, uh, support open borders when you still have a welfare state, let's just say that that's, and I feel like value systems, legal systems, um, culture, all that stuff go together. So you have a cohesive body of law and expectations and, and style of living. And yes, you can talk about gender roles and parenting and all that kind of stuff, but it comes down to, uh, like in Sweden, I have a Swedish friend who said that they have like only one party. That's probably, that's not true anymore. But she said, you know, she was growing up, her father, whatever, they had only one party. There was no real rich. There was no real poor. It was middle class. Nobody really worked that hard. Everybody had these weird tacos with cucumbers on Wednesday. They had wine on Friday. Like it was extremely... Um, like uh, monoculture. Uh, mono it was just a monoculture. So, so that they were kind of fine with that. But once you, you know, it can be exploited if you have all of a sudden some company that is exempted from I don't know what their wage laws, you know, and then you've got these these this leakage. I guess my point is just I can see how. You would want a either, you know, if you had a legal system that was based on a certain value system and has to be cohesive, whereas if you like what we have here, we have the left and the right. You cannot have, um, you know, low taxes and high government handouts like you're just not going to have that. And, you know, it just doesn't make sense that we're fighting the pendulum swings. It's so destabilizing. It's so disruptive because we have two competing ideologies here and i feel like it makes sense to to have a unified ideology if you want a system where everybody's working towards the same goals and based on the same values and i think it was i forget who who said it that um you have a civilization civilization in decline even if it's getting richer if it has competing value systems because People are working at odds with each other. Like, I don't, you know, my daughter says liberal things. I'm like, dude, I'm paying for you to go to school. You're going to be a powerful voice in this world. And you're going to be working against what I believe like that. That bothers me. And uh, so I just, you know, I can see that there's value. But I, I can't help but think that in a, it either comes down to the way the land is, the geography, or geology, or topography, or climate, or the religion. I mean, do you feel like it's based on anything like that? Like, is religion important? What is the impact of that? Of having different, like, when you have Mexicans, that's different from having the Mal or the Sikh, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I again, I think there's, there, I don't think there's any single factor that drives, that drives particular groupings. And I think, you know, one of the things that we have yet to see shake out in, in our own history when it comes to immigration. And I think it's something that the the mainstream media and the population at large kind of misses out on. 
is that these immigrant populations don't necessarily think the way that people stereotypically believe that they think. Yes, I and noticed I'll, that. I'll, when I'll the Mexican population is a particular example. If the Republican Party was smart, they would be running Spanish language ads yes. every Hispanic community in America yes. saying, President Biden wants your son to have a quinceanera. <laughs> right. Talk to a Mexican father sometime yeah. about the son becoming his daughter or the daughter becoming his son. They will lose their mind. Yeah. These are socially and religiously conservative people and conservative cultures. And I think that hasn't really shaken itself out yet. As we assimilate these cultures in, you know, a lot of these folks have much more, have much, um, you talked about religion. They have a much tighter connection to religion than the modern power structure that we have. We have to remember that our country has been ruled and controlled by the baby boomers for longer than any other generation has ever held power. And a lot of that post-1960s kind of ideology comes back to the abandonment of religion as a basis for a value system. A lot of the immigrants that we're bringing in have a much tighter connection to religion than the quote-unquote Americans that are running the show right now that we see engaging in such destructive policies. So, you know, I think religious belief and religious value can be something that tie people together and honestly maybe something that can give us hope for the future that we're actually headed to a nation that has a better set of values than what we have today. Um, you know. So the immigration I, is good then. I don't think, I think what, that's why I, I use the qualifier. Yeah. I don't think immigration is a bad thing. Right. I think unchecked immigration is a bad thing. I think uncontrolled immigration is a bad thing. Well, do we need labor? How would you control it? What do we need? Do we need labor? My farmers would tell you that there's a shortage of agricultural labor. My answer is that the agricultural labor problem should be addressed entirely by guest worker programs. But Or how about people on welfare? Why is that not? Or, I well, I, I think you and I even talked about this before. I 100% agree that people on welfare should be required to work. And I think before you get welfare... They should send you out to the fields to pick. That I don't would, believe, I don't believe, horse labor though. That would be pretty un. Well, we won't give you welfare. Yeah, optics will be pretty bad on that one. No, go ahead and starve if you don't. If you, we need talk, water. Say, you're talk, we'll now get, you're talking my language. <laughs> you, know, you, you don't want to work in the field. We're not going to give you free money. Right. Look, I would work in the field. Walk around any. You know, go to any low income community and walk around the public high school. Every kid's got a cell phone. Every kid's walking oh, around yeah. with a thousand dollar cell phone. Well, you have to have that. You got to propagandize them, and that's how they're undermining so, the religion. You know, so I mean, I think there's there's a whole lot of layers to this, but yeah, I think we should be much more selective about who we allow into the country. I think, you know, I think welcoming with open arms the all of the poorest and most desperate people in the world, mm -hmm. the inevitable result is you make your own society yeah. poor. Yeah. And so, so yeah, at some point. You're going to look at two people that you think are are people that you're empathetic towards, or you think they're deserving, you think they're nice people, and one of them you're going to have to say no to. All right. 
at some point the line has to get cut off. And right now we have no control whatsoever, no control at all. So we don't have a conversation in this country about what are our labor needs and who do we want to let in to right. meet those labor needs. And to some degree, maybe that maybe we do. I think we. I think we should be limiting at the, the lesser skilled end of the spectrum. We should be limiting things. I think we should be pushing people off of welfare and into low-wage jobs because you should not be able to get welfare if farmers need employees or yeah. if, if a restaurant needs a busboy, you should be yeah. compelled to take that job. I mean, in the California unemployment system, it used to be that you had to at least show that you were like out applying for jobs. They don't yeah. even do that anymore. They just give them unemployment and they don't have to do anything. Well, how? Um, I was on unemployment once and uh, and I had to do that and uh, I did it. They yeah. they all spoke to me in Spanish and I was like, I don't speak Spanish. And I thought I was a self-hating Hispanic who didn't admit that <laughs> like we were talking about before, but I, I'm not Hispanic. I didn't even, definitely never heard of it. And that's why I'm talking about the practicality of this. There's a whole lot of things we can do within these existing systems, systems that we might not like, right? Like the public schools, like the welfare system. Right. Subsidizing but, higher education indiscriminately unrelated to what what will pay off in the end to me is the first thing that's got to go. It's something that yeah, we could just well, end. I would either A, get rid of the, the, the student loan system altogether. Yes, definitely. Or... Short of that, if you can't do that, I would make the schools guarantee the student loans. If the if the student defaults, then the college has to pay the loan. But no, what would happen is what used to happen. What happens to my sister is that she worked as a secretary and that, and it was like a pharmaceutical company. They paid for her to go to school at night and they gave her a job. And it was just like the army. Like if she worked for whatever it was, five years, she never had to pay the, the, the loans back. And if she quit, she had to pay it back. And if she got another job, the new company would pay back her loans for her. I mean, it's it's a perfect way, especially if yeah. you take the savings and apply it to reducing corporate taxes, which maybe you don't like, maybe you do like, you but should, I'm just you saying. You should be able to borrow $150,000 to get an art history degree. Yeah, or even an English degree. You know, I, I took out an SBA loan for my business at one point, and I had to show them that I had a business plan that was going to generate the income to be able to pay that loan back. Wow. If you want to take out a student loan, you should be able to show that you've got Absolutely. a career path that's going to enable. Like The bank should have that same type of risk management yeah. system in place. And they should say, you know what? No, Johnny, we're not going to let you borrow this money to get that degree because that degree doesn't have enough value in the marketplace to justify this investment. Banks aren't even allowed to discriminate against people giving them credit cards based on their major. So a person who's going to get a job in one year as a, you know, computer science, it ha you cannot more readily, or this was the way it was, actually I went to law school with a gal who fought and won that case. Like she, I was like, oh, he's mad at her for that. I was like, so now I have to pay a higher interest rate as someone who's really going to get a job because you have in that risk pool of people who are going to default on that credit card, a bunch of jazz history majors and you made that happen. And I love her dearly. She's super brilliant. But like that mindset that you shouldn't discriminate against people based on their major. It's not only just subsidies, but it goes right down to credit cards. Am and I it's sure? insane to me because you're encouraging people. It's not only a moral hazard to get people into debt they cannot pay back, but or we are going to have to pay back for them. But it's encouraging them. It, it's just it's it's muting the signals that would tell them what's a better career path. Right. Well, my, at my son's high school, they spent academic class time helping the kids fill out their FAFSA, the Federal Application for Student for Federal Student Aid. 
And in none of that did they tell them, be careful what you borrow. Right. And make sure that you're pursuing a degree that has enough economic value that you're going to be able to pay that back. And that's, I mean, again, there are problems within within all of these. How can you think this sure. isn't isn't intentional? Like I, I had knew two people. One was going to school for pharmacy and one was going to school for hotel management in two different country, states. And both of them were encouraged to drop that major and take psych or business, like something not of real practical value. There is some policy directive that seems universal and top down that encourages the the worst possible outcomes. And you think that's just an accident? You know, I don't know how much of it's accident. I think there's a combination of intentionality to it, but I also think that it spirals on itself because the people that are encouraging those decisions are people who come from that same academic system. And it's curated well, to promote them. It's so weird and broken and insulated from reality. But there's uh, also immigrant first laws for or people of color first laws for government hiring oh no doubt no doubt and again you know this is why it's an uncomfortable thing for people to talk about in the context of immigration but it's why we need to have a filter we need to have a decision process on who are we going to allow to come here because if we have people who are already here of whatever ethnicity doesn't matter but people who are already here who are either A, overly reliant on the public dole, or B, struggling, we need to address that first before we let more impoverished people come here. If you look at it all across Europe, one of the things that's happening in Europe right now is all of their social safety net, their socialist social welfare programs, you know, they're, they're from their healthcare to their retirement that they all love so much and they were all so proud of. All of that's being broken by immigration. Now, part of the immigration problem does come back to the one world government problem because a lot of what's driving third world immigration is imperial conquest by the United States. And, and oh yes, and I feel like that's Western nations intentional I mean, to drive immigration. And I think yes, yes, and I think that there's this underlying idea. And you tell me if you think that the subjects are really responsible. There's this underlying idea that people, indigenous people of European descent in Europe, or whatever, do not have the right to life. And I would say they're accepting that guilt based on the fact that their colonial elites were responsible. There was a British empire that went into these other countries. And then there in the 60s in England, they had not like our like similar to our immigration change in, in the 60s. They had a change where all colonized countries could have unfettered immigration into the UK. And I went to London recently and they're absolutely positively majority minority absolutely positively in london i mean it's obvious to just looking at it but um but people accept this uh guilt and we do continue to do this so so the american empire continues to scatter refugees and they would say terrorists and stuff like wildfire and they, and they and they come back here and we open the doors and of course they're not happy that we blew up their country they have to come here like this seems very intentional to me very um you know, treasonous by the people who run this country. And it's and it's not for me about uh, immigration or whatever. It feels like it's an intentional, it's like a pathocracy. It's intentionally undermining any kind of productive, cohesive government. I think that's true. And I think it, you know, again, it undermines that, that idea of sovereignty that we talked about before that's a bulwark against one world government, which, you know, what our elites of both 
Democrat and Republican ilk have shown of themselves over the years is they want increasingly, you know, one world bigger and bigger and bigger government because that's what benefits them. And the more that the rest of us live like serfs and the less accountable they are to us, the more they can get that. So they need to break down national identities. They need to scatter people around the world. Now, the other part of that is something that's gone on from beliefs as long as history has been gone on, which is the exploitation of the so-called third world for resources. I laughed so hard that, you know, Janet Yellen recently did her little tour of Africa. And it's like, yep, they always they always get back to Africa when, when they need stuff. You know, oh, and they still need that stuff. Where are they mining for all their minerals for their copper green energy? And, right. They, they, they need these child slaves to mine copper and lithium and, and cobalt and all these things. Cobalt, yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, the Middle East, the same thing. Like, these are the parts of the world that, you know, these elites are no different from, you know, the European elites that, colonized for the same purpose, for the exploitation of natural resources to feed their wealth. They're doing the same thing. But what they've realized is that, you know, particularly in the United States, breaking down the, the you know, you mentioned earlier that what, what was unique about the United States was sort of the voluntary nature that you chose to become an American and you chose this culture and you chose this nation, even to the point of leaving behind language, leaving behind certain cultural traditions. Now, other cultural traditions persisted, right? People tended to keep their food. They tended to keep their religion. You know, they tend to keep a lot of these things. But this next wave of immigration, what they're using that for is to break those things down even further. You know, the the assault on religion through COVID was something that is not discussed a lot. Pope but Francis, man, led the charge on that. Close the, the churches on Ash Wednesday. It's one of the most horrifying things to me, right? Unbelievable. Like, Sick. You know, in, in ancient times, Christians literally died to yeah. continue worship. And, you know, it's one of my, as a Catholic, it's one of my great disappointments that the, that the Catholic Church led that charge. Just like, when people were afraid of dying, they closed the churches and you couldn't go to confession. That is right. inversion. Right. If if it really was a deadly plague, should not the house of, of God be the place that you could go? Yeah, pack <laughs> pack it right in there. Like just whatever. Lock the doors. We're going down. <laughs> going down um, with the ship. But you know, so you know, it's just very hard for me not when I look at you know, when I look at the San Joaquin Valley, and I you know I didn't grow up there, but it really became my home. And you look at these little towns across the, the, the San Joaquin Valley that at one time were these very cohesive agricultural communities, kind of very much like the small town I live in now in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And they have lost that. You know, in towns like, like Reedley, you have gangs now. There's no gangs in the town I live in in Oregon. Like youth crime there is like a couple of kids go to a field and get drunk and, you know, feels <laughs> yeah. a little bit or kids get rowdy at our local skate park but like you know this it's not because of the ethnicity or the culture of the immigrants it's because of the reality of the consequences of mass migration of any culture and unchecked immigration of any culture and you know go read accounts 
of what New York City was like in the time of mass Irish migration. It's grim. It's really, really grim. And mass migration is not a good thing. It's not a healthy thing. And it's not good for a culture. It's not good for a society. And it's not necessarily good for the immigrants themselves. And I find it very telling you know, that in my lifetime, we've graduated from illegal aliens to undocumented immigrants to refugees to migrants is the word they use now. <laughs> it's an increasing level of acceptability and acceptance that unchecked immigration is here to stay and it can't be stopped. And I get really angry that this thing gets generally broken down into this idea of, are you pro-immigrant or anti-immigrant? It's not about pro or anti-immigration. I'm perfectly fine with there being immigration, but it needs to be controlled. Certain rules need to be enforced. And we need to have a conversation in our society about what is our policy going to be? What's best for us? Like, There's no debate right now. And there hasn't been for a very long time about what, what is the best immigration system for who we want to be as a country, both economically, socially, and culturally? Right. What is it that we need? What is it that we want? What is it that we want to have? Yeah. Right. And what does that mean for different sectors? Right. What does that mean for the tech sector if you know they can use uh, specialty visas to get people to come oh, here? They're outsourcing and, it. Right. This what won't even mean? be part of the conversation anymore. Right. What does it mean for agriculture? What does it mean for our society that in a matter of a few short years, a lot of these low-wage jobs that these immigrants have been filling are going to be filled by robots? Well, that's the thing about family reunification and stuff. The argument that immigrants are coming over to fill jobs, it it when you pile on how many people are coming over for every job, that's not really it. And when and when you're saying that though even those jobs will be eliminated, then you will have this entire displaced underclass that doesn't even necessarily have the roots that they had in the country they left as, and had a false promise and aren't going back. I have a client who operates a, a food processing plant in the San Joaquin Valley, and they operate in a small town that's kind of out in the middle of nowhere that I'm sure you've never heard of. And they're the biggest employer in that town. They basically sustain the entire town. Uh, they told me a while back, it was when California announced the $15 minimum wage, that the $15 an hour minimum wage was the breaking point for them, True. where it made sense to invest heavily in automation. Yes. And COVID did the same thing. And so now they're, well, also the, the risks associated with employment, they've had a couple of really bad yeah. lawsuits and they're like, okay, well, wait a minute. They gave me the numbers. The amount of money they're going to save in one year yeah. on labor, just on wages, just on payroll, is going to pay entirely for the cost of the robots. That's and because the U.S. government has heavily subsidized the research that has well, created You get R&D tax credits, but I'm talking about just cash for cash. No, the, I know what you're saying, but I'm saying that that trade-off would never have happened if industry itself had to be responsible for the R&D. They're no, adopting even, tech that's been highly subsidized by the taxpayers who will lose their jobs. Right. Well, they, they've been incentivized to do it because the, the in California, the cost of employing people and the risk of employing people with the screwed up workers' comp system, with all of the, the litigation that goes on, 
with just the payroll costs. And then you throw into it the tax advantages because you can depreciate the machines. You get R&D tax credits. Yes, you get all, definitely. You get all, I mean, it's a no-brainer for them to do this. And this so, is intentional, in my opinion. Place that had, a place that had hundreds of unskilled jobs. These are, these are unskilled jobs. They take no skill at all. Right. Uh, hundreds of these jobs. Those jobs are going to be gone. Those and who filled those undocumented immigrants who filled those jobs are still here. Right. What are those people going to do? Right. What are they going right. to do? We're we're importing people to fill labor needs that aren't going to be here tomorrow. Right. You know, I don't know if you saw the news story recently. This one really caught my eye. That Starbucks is. There's like their their employees are angry at them in San Francisco because at a bunch of their locations in San Francisco, Starbucks is taking out the seating so no one can sit. It's all grab and go. No oh wow! Anymore, and wow. the employees are all angry because they're like, "Well, this is our community. This is where yeah. people come." And like, yeah, um, that was and, how they got built up like that. He thought of it as a Wi-Fi cap cafe. And by the way, these are unionized Starbucks stores. And me with my labor attorney hat on saw That's that, it. like, no, 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 no. This is not about Starbucks. The excuse that they gave was, well, we're having too many problems with the homeless. They come in and they 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 sit there all day. And oh, they that's so them. interesting. That's not the reason. Because they had we're, that big psyop with the guy saying they weren't allowed to use the bathroom back in the day. They're getting ready to train the public for automated Starbucks. Yeah. They're getting rid of those. In five years, you will not see a human being when you walk into Starbucks. A coffee place is the easiest thing to automate. Yeah. Because it's all just measured. Yeah, you, know, you can do it now, yeah. You got the different stuff and mixes it together. I it's do it not, in my kitchen. <laughs> it's, it's way easier. <laughs> I just press coffee. a button. They're getting rid of these jobs. You know, when, when the Starbucks started unionizing, I laughed. Because Starbucks actually is a really good employer. They have like scholarship programs. They do all kinds of things for their employees. And these spoiled brats who are the two people you're talking about, the, like the jazz history majors with student loan debt, the guy who started the whole Starbucks unionization movement is a Rhodes Scholar working at Starbucks. Well, that's a oh. Rhodes Scholar would be the one to start it. He's a plant, Anthony. Why don't you right. see these conspiracies? They're there. And so what, what the, result <laughs> is, the result is they're be, we're all being trained in various businesses to accept automation. Yes. And you, know, you see it in like the Walmarts and the grocery stores very easily, right? It, when it started, they had like one self-checkout, right? Years ago, you're old enough to remember, it used to be when you walked into the grocery store, if there was a line, somebody got on a phone and said, hey, we need yeah. another checker. Yeah. Right? We can't have people waiting in line. Yeah. Now you go into a Walmart or a grocery store, there's a long line at the human checkout, but there's yeah. that nice big self-checkout with you know, 12 Absolutely. self-checkout. Right? They're training you to Absolutely. accept the technology. They're training you to get used to it. So that they can eliminate the human element altogether and get rid of that labor. So whether you can talk about the reasons for it, the conspiracy behind it, whether it's good or bad, but the reality is we are headed to a world where there are fewer and fewer and fewer unskilled labor jobs. And we are continuing to import millions of people yeah. who have no job skills. Well, we'll have to talk next time about the, you know, what comes next? What are, what are the cultural implications? What are some of the solutions? Maybe I'll put that to you, Anthony. Um, so, yeah, very interesting. I'd love to hear your firsthand um, opinion. And of course, you're never afraid to take the shots at libertarians. But I have to say, I mean, I recognize 
the difference between ideology and the practical reality on the ground. And I'm starting to think that we, you know, we have to be able to speak more honestly about these problems. And and we are all stifled because they, the big T, they, the powers that be, the people who feed this ideology into the academia, I would say it could be the Milner-Fabian conspiracy. They want to um, have everybody kind of chill themselves by making it all super racial, making it super yeah. racial to have this conversation. But I'm telling you, if they were Slavs, you would have the same problem. Like there's problems like that when when the when the um, wall fell and a lot of Eastern Europeans went to New York and a lot of Russians came in and took over like nursing homes and stuff and exploited the 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 system. Anything that government paid for all of a sudden was infiltrated was um, exploited by people who were very very used to figuring out how to get money out of the out of a government system you know and it was very disruptive to the industries and to the whatever so it's not about race but we're we've been taught not to speak about it because you sound like a racist so it's it's uncomfortable and it's a it's it's definitely the high road to be able to be a libertarian and say you know come on in racism is now the racism is now the big taboo and we can't have a talk about we can't talk about immigration at all without being called racist because that the whole purpose of that is just, as you say, to preclude the conversation from occurring about, from a policy standpoint as a society, what's best for us in terms of right. immigration. And that's not about the color of the person's skin or where in the world they came from. Right. It's about, you know, what do we really want for ourselves as a nation? And nobody wants that conversation to happen. You know, I'll I'll close with you want to see how crazy this stuff gets and we'll relate it back to COVID. So uh, somebody that I know who's in, in uh, the political side of agriculture called me during COVID because there were debates going on in California and Sacramento about, well, we have to get unemployment for farm workers because how are all these undocumented farm workers going to survive COVID unless they can get unemployment insurance benefits? And the poor farm workers, since they're not, um, they don't have legal status in this country, they're not getting unemployment. And I spit out my coffee when they said that to me. Like, are you kidding me? Do these people? What's wrong? <laughs> Every farm worker gets unemployment. They get, they get, un- they don't ask you an EDD for proof of citizenship, and you're on a payroll, right? And are you here yeah. to work? Yeah, they are on a payroll, so they're paid into EDD. Yeah. They have proof of employment. They get on un- every seasonal layoff. Farm workers get on. Un- every farmer has the highest. I mean, in Hollywood, they do that as a thing. That's part of the way you live. It's like you get a job. On a on a movie or a TV show or whatever, and in the off season you go on unemployment. It subsidizes the, oldest, the pay. The oldest scam in agriculture, and every, they they might not admit it publicly, but every farmer knows about this. I've made jokes about it when I've done like seminars for farmer business groups, and it always gets a big laugh because everybody knows about it. Because I'm like, oh well, I know your workers would never do this, but what they do is say you take a job in the San Joaquin Valley in the summertime harvesting grapes. You harvest grapes all summer. November, October, November comes around when the season ends, you get laid off. You go to EDD, you file for unemployment because you got laid off for the season. Then under a different name and a different social security number, you get a job harvesting citrus in the wintertime. Right. You make that money plus you get your unemployment check. But it's literally the oldest scam in the book. They all do it. Yeah. I even blame them for doing it because they're incentivized to do yeah. it by this whole broken system that we're in and this immigration system that allows them to exist under false identities. Yeah. Right. But like the idea 
The very idea, and Gavin Newsom was talking about it on TV. Oh, a poor fat worker's taking unemployment. They get more than anybody. Nobody uses, uses unemployment more than farm workers do. Right. I mean, when you get down by the border, you go down to like El Centro, where they harvest lettuce in the wintertime. A lot of those workers, like I knew like guys who were forklift drivers in the in the in the salad plants down there, the processing plants down there, they live in Mexicali. So all winter they work and they like forklift drivers make good money. Yeah. So they work for the season. They live in Mexicali, but they have an address, you know, like a box address in California or a relative in California. So when the season's over, they get their unemployment in California, but they're living in Mexicali under Mexican cost of living. That <laughs> check is a nice income. Wow. Yeah. They work class income and own their own homes. Yeah. And they work three months out of the year. Because the rest of the year they're getting unemployed. Sounds great. But yet, <laughs> the discussion is- amongst the media and the Sacramento elites was, oh, the poor farm workers don't get yeah. unemployment. I'm like, do these people? I mean, look, I saw it in my case with the state bar that touched on immigration. The guy who was prosecuting me acted like what ICE does is they wander the cities of America. And if they find out that somebody's undocumented, they throw a bag over their head and they wake up in Mexico. <laughs> it's the most preposterous thing. Like, no one gets arrested. I mean, you have to be, you have to have like a serious criminal record or have done something very transgressive for them to arrest you. If you don't have a criminal record and they find out that you're undocumented, first of all, most likely they're going to ignore it. Even if they don't ignore it, they send you what's called a notice to appear, which is a letter that says you have to show up at immigration court on a particular day. And if you don't show up, they're going to put out a warrant for your arrest that's never going to get enforced. And if you do show up, they're going to release you on your own recognizance. They'll give you a court date in three years and a temporary visa to work while you're waiting for your court date. <laughs> so you're kind of in a better position. <laughs> well, you know, during, um, during Obama, one of the things that happened a lot was people who had been... So, the way the immigration system on paper is set up is that if you've been here illegally, you can't you can't correct your status while you're here. Like they don't want to incentivize yeah. people to come here and just figure I'll figure it out later. Yeah. Right. So in order to correct your legal status, you have to go home to your home country and apply for le- legal entry from your home country. You yes, yes. I'm here. familiar with that. Well, what was happening during the Obama administration is as much as they called him the deporter in chief, what was happening in the Obama administration, I know this was happening in the San Francisco immigration court. The immigration courts were so overwhelmed because of Obama's aggressive immigration policies. We were talking about plea bargains. People were turning themselves in in San Francisco because they knew they would go to court and if they had a clean record, there's uh, there's a defense to deportation called cancellation of removal. Where if you have ties to the community, say you're you're married to a U.S. citizen, you have children who were born here, you know you've kept your nose clean, you've been working, you're not a problem, you can get what's called cancellation of removal, where they let you stay and give you legal status, and they were plea bargaining people out of the immigration system by giving them cancellation of removal and legal wow. status. Wow, fastest way to get legal status that you could ever have, and so people are literally voluntarily turning themselves in because uh, they could expedite their legal status just to clear the dockets of the immigration court. It's just funny to me that, I mean, it seems obvious to me that all the policies are designed to have this immigration system the way it is. 
Here we say that people are crossing the border and you can't control it. But in other countries like Sweden, that has like a lot of Iraqis and Somalians, they have to admit that it's policy issues. And still the government against the wills, will of the of the people in democratic society, a lot of times continue these these laws. So I feel like these policies. So I feel like the the idea that like a wall would stop it is just a way to to confuse the American public as this. It's a problem that can't be solved. It's definitely a policy problem. And it's definitely being driven by people who want the outcomes that we're seeing. All right. So for your libertarian listeners who probably hate me now. <laughs> no, no. I'm we're gonna leave, all I'm open. Gonna I'm going to leave you with a little conspiracy idea because you're- okay. You're you're my favorite conspiracy theorist, and I mean that Fantastic. I mean that in the fondest of terms. Yeah, oh, I love it. Bring it. Libertarians love the idea that the pure libertarian view is open borders, right? I guess, yeah, yeah. It is the pure, yes, the right to okay. work and travel is how I would put it. If you look at our system as it exists right now, for practical purposes, especially in a place like California or Arizona, yeah. ask that we essentially have open. borders. Yes, I agree with that. Okay. So we have open borders clearly because that's what the powers that be want. Yeah. If the powers that be want us to have open borders, I think that's a pretty good indication that open borders may not be good for us. <laughs> in a pathocracy, yes, that a, is a good a, way. Yeah. That's as dysfunctional as this. See, now you're if talking my language, Anthony. Those who are in power want us to have open borders. Yes. Maybe our natural instinct should be to not have open borders. Beware. I agree with you there. All right. On that note, I will say thank you to Anthony Raimondo, our favorite activist lawyer. What a hero during COVID. Always here with well thought out, solid opinions that he is never afraid to share. And actually, I noticed during our conversation that the beginning of basically every anecdote you told was like, I pissed somebody off the other day by saying, or I really annoyed one of my friends the other day by saying. <laughs> well, somebody somebody sent me a meme the other day that I shared with my my wife, and she laughed at it. And it said, "I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the exact quote, but it says, it said something like, my mind tells me, don't do it, don't say it, don't, it's not good, <laughs> and my mouth says." Come on, fucker. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely you. And I love that about you because you are coming from a place of honesty. So I really appreciate it. Um, so I can't wait for our next conversation. We'll have to talk about what that's going to be about. And don't go away, Anthony. I need you to wait until after this is all over sure. and say goodbye to me. Uh, but yes, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, this has been a live dive on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. <laughs>